Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Catherine Oliver. The pandemic has exacerbated some of the biggest challenges facing the world, from climate change to public health and government leadership to education. Over the past few years, Bloomberg Philanthropies has doubled down on existing commitments, expanded our partnerships, and formed new ones to make the biggest impact possible. That wouldn't be possible without the leadership of Patty Harris, our chief executive officer who oversees all of Mike Bloomberg's giving, including his philanthropic, corporate and personal giving, as well as Bloomberg Associates, a pro bono consultancy that works with mayors in cities around the world. In this episode, Bloomberg Philanthropy's CEO Patty Harris talks with Hank Paulson, the 74th U.S. Treasury Secretary and a member of the Bloomberg Philanthropy's Board of Directors to discuss her experience in public service, the importance of hiring a great team, rallying the private sector to support the clean energy transition, and more. Their conversation was adopted from Straight Talk, a podcast by the Paulson Institute. You'll succeed if you love what you do. You have to find a place where you believe in the people that you work with and that they believe in you. We spend so much time working. You really want to feel inspired and respected and supported, but you can't spend all your time working. I think balance is really important. You know, I may be a leader at work, but I'm also a mom and a wife and a sister and a daughter and a friend and a board member. And those titles are important to me too. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Patricia Harris. Patricia is the CEO of Bloomberg Philanthropies, which encompasses all of Michael Bloomberg's giving, his corporate and personal philanthropy, as well as Bloomberg Associates, a pro bono consultancy that works with mayors and cities around the world. She's played a pivotal role in helping Mike give away $12.7 billion, including more than $1.6 billion. From 2002 to 2013, Patty served in the Bloomberg administration in New York City and became first deputy mayor. She is the first woman in New York City's history to serve in this role, which is the city's highest appointed position. Patty is a lifelong New Yorker, mother, and an experienced scuba diver. Patty, welcome to the podcast. As a board member of Bloomberg Philanthropies, I've had a ringside seat as I've watched your ability to successfully manage a large foundation with the same results-oriented focus demonstrated by the best private companies. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. So let's start at the beginning. What sparked your interest in public service? Was it your parents, your early education? Well, first, thank uh, thank you so much, Hank, for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation, too, and it's great to be here. So, like so many people, my parents were my first inspiration. They were lifelong New Yorkers, as am I. They loved the city. They weren't really civic leaders, per se, but they were both engaged in their community and giving back when they could. My mom uh, became a social worker 
later in her life and still is a social worker and mentors um, kids who are part of a charter school. And another early influence was the mother of two of my very good friends. Um, her name was Doris Friedman, and she was a dynamic person who really um, led the charge in public art around New York City. And I was always so intrigued and impressed by what she did. She started a group first called City Walls, and it now is called the Public Art Fund, and I get to sit on the board. But my work, first real experience in public service came in high school. Um, I went to a very progressive high school in the Bronx, and we were all required to volunteer our last semester of high school. So I decided and lucked out by volunteering in my local congressman's office, who was Ed Koch. And I ended up spending the summer working for him. And I went back to his office for summer internships, lots of correspondence, a lot of thank you notes. He cared about that a lot. Um, and then uh, during college, I studied government and art history. And after graduation, he was running for mayor of New York City. So while I was on a backpacking trip around Europe with a friend of mine, he won um, a primary and then a runoff. And then I thought I'd better get back to New York to uh, start to see if I could find a job with him. So right from college, going to work for Mayor Koch, that, that must have been something going right to City Hall. What were some of the formative experiences working for Mayor Koch? You know, where did you learn from him? Well, the thing I loved about him was that, you know, I started as an intern writing thank you notes and he let me grow. I was at City Hall with him for 12 years. Um, for the first six weeks when he was mayor, I had to stay in his local congressional office to help close it up till there was a special election. And then I got to City Hall and I was part of the team that the Board of Estimate team. And so uh, what the Board of Estimate was, which doesn't exist anymore, it was a bunch of elected officials who had to review and approve every contract over a certain amount of money that the city entered into. I think it was $10,000. So it was city, like city government 101 because I met all of the commissioners of all the different agencies and I met all the borough presidents and I got a great sense of what how the city really worked. Then after that, I was the liaison to New York City's Washington office. There's a lobbying Washington office there. And I was working in government affairs. I was in New York, but I was the liaison to that office charged with making sure that the city got its fair share of money from D.C. And then my third job, which I had for seven years, I was at City Hall for 12, was director of the city's art commission. And the Art Commission had to review and approve all designs of anything that was built on city-owned land. So it's everything from police stations and schools to benches and lampposts and parks and city buildings. So the range of design, the range of activity was really exciting. And um, it, that, again, required me to work across a lot of different agencies. There, were real, there was a really interest, interesting volunteer board with architects. Um, one was a partner of IM Pay, an incredible painter called Robert Ryman, a landscape architect. So I was also exposed to really smart people who were doing their job for the city. So I spent 12 years at City Hall under Ed Koch. I also had two great women who were my bosses. Um, one was Diane Coffey and one was Rone Menchel. And Hank, you must have known Rene's husband. She was a force. A force. She was a little scary, but we're still friends. And 
I respected her so much. And um, they were great mentors. And I learned a lot of lessons from Mayor Koch. I'd say one thing that he drilled into me and similar with Mayor Bloomberg is have a great team. You've got to really have a great team. And, you know, that sort of summed up my 12 years in the Koch administration. But my most memorable moment, Hank, which I have to go into another day, was that I went into labor at City Hall. <laughs> wow. Well, I tell you, you've been able to balance, you know, you've been sure been able to balance family, motherhood, and a job. But it's interesting because so many people invariably say what you've said. It really comes down to team, having the right people in the right places. And if you do that, things work. But then, you know, what happens, you know, when people run for office, the term ends, you know, and, and it's on to something else. And what did you do after city government before you started working for Mike Bloomberg? I worked um, for two public relations firms, and I was an account executive, I guess, in um, the group that was interested in the arts. And a number of our clients um, were clients that supported the arts or the cultural sector. And it was really interesting seeing what it was like. It was my first job in private business. And that was um, very interesting. And again, uh, very fun. And it sort of bridged the um, arts and corporate, the corporate world. And then, of course, you met another future mayor uh, of New York City, you know, Mike Bloomberg. Right. So talk about how that partnership developed early on. And then I'm going to really want to delve into working for Ed Koch and then Mike Bloomberg must have been day and night in terms of different personalities and leadership styles and so on. Sure. Um, Well, to step back, I wasn't really looking for a job, but I got a call. I was at the PR firm and I got a call from someone who I knew very well. And she said, there's this guy, Mike Bloomberg. um, And I'd never heard of him at the time, but he's looking for someone we think to help him on his philanthropy, but we're not really sure of the job description. It was a very strange call. And for some reason I said, okay, that sounds interesting. And they described him and I said, okay, well, I'll have a conversation. So I had a couple of interviews and then finally talked to Mike and his company still felt very much like a startup, but as the business was beginning um, to be successful, he really wanted to focus on how he could give back in New York and how he could make his company a real player in the New York scene. So at the time he was signing everyone's paychecks, he was writing his um, charitable checks by hand, and he kept his calendar in a little book in his pocket. He was on the board of a number of nonprofits. He was on the board of Johns Hopkins and his daughter's schools and some others. On my very first day, We went to lunch with a woman and she asked him to join the Central Park Conservancy Board. And he was eager to really do more, I think, because, you know, Mike talks about his parents having such a commitment to giving back. And that came from his Wall Street, I think, you know, beginnings. You can talk, Hank, because there really is a culture of giving back at Wall Street, right? So interesting that when you started off, he started this up, but he was still signing checks by hand, right? Right. (laughs) Giving them out. (laughs) <laughs> and so then how, how did, so is that developed? You know, give me, so you give us some anecdotes from the early days in terms of the, of the giving, but talk a little bit about his, you know, his 
his style and, you know, what it was like working for him. And, and then at what point and how did he decide to run for mayor? And, and, and what was that like? Right. <laughs> the campaign. Well, the one thing about Mike is I don't think his style has really changed. Um, first of all, he sat in a big open office, right? So he was the only CEO I knew who had the same size you know, desk as everybody else. And I sat right next to him. Right. And so sometimes he would hear conversations and I decided I had to, you know, had to be very strong with that and just get used to it. Right. No, no secrets. Right. Um, but he was very ambitious. He had a great sense of humor. He never really defined the job for me, though. I never had a piece of paper with an outline. So I just tried to learn about the company and see what different departments were doing and what they could do more of. And we picked a couple of nonprofits that maybe people could volunteer at. And that just sort of started the um, employee program. And then we looked at what clients and customers, you know, are always asking for money and tickets and tables, we call them now. And so learned how to sort of create a network with that. It was a really amazing opportunity. And he was, um, very open. He was always in before I was because I had to bring my little son to nursery school, but he never gave me a hard time. And um, we just sort of had a great chemistry and simpatico, and I respected him so much. And so uh, how did he come to decide to run for mayor? Well, maybe I was naive, but when I went to the company, I never thought that he was even thinking about that. Um, but several years later, I think he started to say, you know, everyone who's worked in government seems to have a twinkle in their eye. They just like it. And I think he really cared about New York. He's a very ambitious guy, as you know. And we had hired at the time Kevin Sheiky, um, one of my favorite hires that I made. Very proud of that. And he was hired to be a political advisor in Washington. And so, you know, Mike started to talk to Kevin about it. He was talking to me about it. And we took him around New York to meet with a lot of different people and to really get to know, you know, more political people, some nonprofit people in the city. By January 2001, he still hadn't made up his mind. And the election was in November 2001. So Kevin and I decided we had to make a dinner date, put it on his calendar and tell him he had to make a decision. So we did that. We went to a restaurant and I'll, I'll never forget it. And Mike always tells his story. So I'm not, you know, going out of school. And we sat down and Mike said, okay, let's take a vote. Should I run? And the vote was two to one and the one won out and the race began. So <laughs> the true story I really, you know, felt that I had put my time into City Hall already. Kevin had worked in several congressional offices, but there we were. We were the team. And it was also a real long shot for him to win the race. So, you know, we put together a team really quickly. Um, he announced it in June publicly, which is still not that much time. But everything changed after September 11th. And I think that New Yorkers saw that Mike is a business leader who is results oriented, nonpartisan, was the right leader for the right moment. But I must say, I was, you know, it was a whirlwind uh, year. Were you, you know, in New York at the time, Hank? I sure was. I was running Goldman Sachs at 
the time. A matter of fact, I was in a plane heading to China over Russia when the World Trade Center was hit. Okay. Oh and so we had a hard time. The, the skies were closed. It was landed and, and, and put down in, uh, in China, then made our way back, uh, got special dispensation to fly back. Now, I'm going to switch now to, you know, you've served in some critical roles in the Bloomberg administration, you know, you ultimately as first deputy mayor. And, you know, I would remind our listeners, and I think many of them know this, but leading New York City is equivalent to leading a small country, given its population, diversity, economic importance. And I remember going into Mayor Bloomberg's office back in those days, and it was a unique setup. You know, you, you alluded to it. There was this huge room in City Hall, right? And Correct. no one separated by offices, direct lines of sight, a buzz of activity. And so describe a little bit what it was like working in that environment. Sure. So I had spent seven years at Bloomberg LP. So I was used to, you know, a desk in the middle of a room. And that was even in a newsroom. But I think that when everyone thought that Mike was going to move to City Hall, he was going to sit in the mayor's ceremonial office. And I knew he would not do that. Not only did he not do that, but he filled up a huge room, as he said, with desks and put his seat smack in the middle of the room. So totally open plan. I never thought he'd switch it up. He's never had a private office, I don't think. And we created what we called the bullpen. And all the deputy mayors sat together with Mike in the center. We had a scheduling team. We had some government relations team and everybody's, you know, some staff. And it was very buzzy. It was very efficient. Um, you knew everything that was going on. You could build relationships. Um, you couldn't get into fights for very long because you were sitting right next to people. And when a crisis came along, you could just huddle. And um, Mike likes to say that we never had any press leaks, really, which was an important thing. You know, you learn to just say what was on your mind. And a big part of my role was to help to set the priorities across the administration. Communicating uh, so easily made that easier as well, because you could just swivel your, your chair as opposed to sending an email. So I, I want to get to your role, because to my eye, and you coordinated just about everything to make sure his team was on point. You heard all of Mike's conversations, playing the role very much like a White House chief of staff. So talk about your management style and what you brought to the mayor's office. So um, I had a couple of different roles. One, I was overseeing several different city agencies like parks and cultural affairs um, and consumer affairs. So I had to spend time on that. But I also saw the uh, oversaw the operations of City Hall, including the team that directly uh, supported the mayor, speech writing, scheduling, advance, all of that. In terms of my management style, um, I always think you can get a lot, tell a lot about how someone spends their time. So I really focused on how to spend my time. I spent a lot of my time helping to build a great team and nurture it. So I sat in on interviews. And then when people started, you know, even commissioner, city agency heads and commissioner made a point of being in touch with them, even if they didn't report directly to me. I delegated a lot. I trusted people. I worked hard to create a really supportive environment. And um, one of the things I did learn from Mike, it's very important for people to know that they have your you have their back. So we don't like surprises. And I think the team knew that as well. 
He doesn't want to stop you from coming up with the next idea. And sometimes the staff would be upset with him because, you know, if someone screwed up or an agency head, he would defend them. And most other mayors would just make the commissioner take the heat. He's very unusual that way. Yeah, he is <laughs> quite, quite unusual. And this, I would say, is about your management style, because I can see just in, when I worked with you, uh, as I'm doing things with Mike or, or with Bloomberg Philanthropies, you're very user-friendly in, in that you've, you've got a way of being very nice and very nice, non-confrontational, but very clear, right? And so you get to the point, you don't waste time, and uh, a, a very good listener. But that, I'll tell you, that it makes a big difference because Mike can be a bit abrupt, right? And you're sometimes not always as clear what exactly what he wants, usually is. So, you know, it just made a big difference. It's in some ways a bigger job, not than White House Chief of Staff, but it is more comprehensive because you're the White House Chief of Staff role, but you also had departments reporting directly to you. So a big role. I want to talk a little bit about the areas that reported to you or what you felt you were most proud of, because you, you know, as we said, you had a broad remit focused on everything from economic development to museums, to arts, uh, to the city's architecture. I always tended to associate you with enhancing New York's beauty and cultural excellence, but uh, that's just me. So what are you most proud of from your years in New York City government? Um, well, I think that, you know, even though I wasn't running this, the fact that we transformed the school system and graduation, graduation rates went up 42% by the time we left, I think is a great Bloomberg achievement. Um, we added over 850 new acres of parkland and revitalized the waterfront. The air was cleaner than it had been in 50 years. So that I think is great. And then life expectancy increased by over three years. So those are some of the biggest achievements, I think, you know, and public safety, crime was incredibly low. I have to, can't not say that. So a lot of big things happened. If you, on a personal level, you know, if you talk about the arts that you mentioned before and cultural projects, um, we had more than 500 big public art projects throughout the whole city, reaching almost every neighborhood at one time or another. And I'm sure you remember Jean-Claude and Christos the Gate, and that for 20 years, the city had refused to um, allow this to happen. And literally, I think the sixth week we were in office, um, Mike gave me the go ahead to see what we could do on that. But then we also looked for lots of public-private partnerships like Brooklyn Bridge Park, you know, did, didn't exist when we got to office. The High Line was, I remember taking a walk on this dilapidated piece of infrastructure when Mike was elected and it was about to be torn down. And now it's really such a jewel, you know, that involves public space and integrates art and transform the neighborhood. Condition. Um, and then, of course, the 9-11 Memorial and Jury, uh, um, Memorial, sorry, and Museum. I was so privileged, Hank, that I was able to serve on the jury to select the designer for the memorial and then help uh, to oversee the construction. So that was something that took a lot of time and a lot of um, energy, but I think it's turned out quite well. But that was a public-private partnership, too. And, you know, 
I think that a lot of people wanted to be part of New York City and he wanted to reach out to the business community and other communities um, to engage them in all these big projects. So under his investment and leadership, the cultural sector really went from something that was nice to have to really, you know, must have yeah. much stronger. So yeah, every, every time, like I was uh, several weeks ago, I was in New York and I was at, at a meeting that was held right near Brooklyn Bridge Park right there. And right. I saw it. It's, it's so neat. And I, you know, I was saying, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Patty. It was <laughs> really very, very beautiful. It's incredible. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, I want to transition to your work as CEO of Bloomberg Philanthropies. First, remind our listeners what Bloomberg Philanthropies is. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies encompasses all of Mike's giving. So it's the foundation giving, the corporate giving, and personal giving. So really an umbrella of all those different types of giving. And the mission is better, longer lives for the greatest number of people. And to give your listeners a sense of the scale, last year, we gave away more than $1.6 billion. And the vast majority of our giving goes to large initiatives that are dedicated to different areas. So the arts, education, environment, government innovation and our nonprofit consulting arm that works in cities called Bloomberg Associates, public health. And the most recent one is the Greenwood Initiative, which is focused on accelerating wealth accumulation for black individuals and families. What do you think? Was that a good elevator pitch? You've been on the board for 10 years. (laughs) It sure is. Now, I wanted to say one other thing about it. You can talk about it. Okay. So so I think Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies is uniquely data-driven, you know, uh, I've heard you say, Mike say, can't measure it, you don't know it's successful. So, yeah. So I want to know how you measure impact. Talk a bit about that, because I think this is, it's easy to talk about measuring impact. I think it's much more difficult to figure out how to do it and then ingrain that in a culture. Right. So when we take on a project, um, we clearly track the work and try to figure out different milestones to see how we're making an impact. So that said, we've taken on such complex issues like coal pollution, gun safety, tobacco use. These are not issues where you can set a big goal and hit you know, a milestone every time. So we sit down and spend a lot of time really thinking about how to break down interim metrics we can measure to make sure we're on track. For example, Um, Our ultimate goal for tobacco is to save lives and reduce tobacco use, right? No more cigarettes would be the best goal, but that's very challenging. But that takes a long time. So how do we know we're making progress? How do we know we're uh, working on track? And so we look at the inputs, like how many meetings have there been with government officials? How many laws have changed because of our work? How many ads have we run? How many laws have changed to have plain pack smoking or smoke-free areas? And we watch the numbers and we use them to make decisions. So we follow different geographies because this, as you know, is a global program. But we also know how hard the work is to just get it done quickly. So it's not the kind of thing where you can snap your fingers. You really have to follow all the different metrics that you set up from the beginning and pivot accordingly. So we try to help make our keep ourselves accountable, but also equally Bloomberg is to be flexible and adjust, you know, as the program or the world is changing. 
we were looking today at our tobacco program and one of the most amazing countries has been work we did in the Ukraine and um, all the smoke-free progress we've made there. And it was just interesting to see, you know, how the um, world will affect that work now. You know, we try to be flexible, but we do try to be very data-driven and um, follow numbers and follow programs carefully. And I've watched some of these big tobacco, uh, big campaign guns. Again, mm -hmm. I, I think very, very strategic because how you work there. Now, one of the major issues you're focused on is climate change. Yeah. And so talk a bit about how you view the climate challenge and what is Bloomberg Philanthropies and, and your work with Mike doing to make a difference? Well, you are a climate champion yourself. So I think, you know, we will both agree that this is the threat of our lifetime. Right. Um, it's an issue that you have to look at and tackle from multiple angles. Uh, so we think about it that way. I think Mike's leadership and convening power are really recognized. You know, he's special envoy. The UN has appointed him. And so we try to use that title, but we're also focusing on a number of things. So let's talk about coal first. It's the single greatest barrier to climate progress and a pressing threat to people's health. So working with partners, which again, you've got to find people who are doing the best work in the US, we've helped to retire two thirds of the coal plants that existed in 2011, which is really, I think, great. In Europe, we retired over half of the coal plants that existed in 2016. And at the COP26 in Glasgow, uh, at the annual UN Climate Summit, Mike committed to ending coal in 25 more countries. So we're now sitting down looking at which countries we're going to work in and coming up with the plans, both to close plants and to stop new ones from being constructed. That's one thing we're doing. Um, we also think that cities are key partners in the climate fight. So we support mayors as they're implementing ambitious plans, climate plans, and we help good ideas spread quickly between cities. I think if one city's doing something really innovative, we want to tell every other city, take a look. And we're also rallying the private sector, another important part of the work. So along with fellow board member Mark Carney, Mike has mobilized capital working to do that to accelerate the transition to clean energy. And that's underway now. So those are just a few examples of what we're trying to do. And, and, and they're big examples because I, I would just say that like, you know, saying working to end the coal-fired power plants in the U.S., I mean, there's a very, very specific strategy yeah. based upon a lot of research and a lot of data as to what works and what influences people and then tracking it every step of the way. And right. looking at something country by country and always starting with an open mind. What does it take uh, to, to make a difference? Now, a, a related issue that you're passionate about as an avid scuba diver is protecting ocean ecosystems. And what is the central challenge facing our oceans? What will happen if we don't protect them? And what do we need to do to preserve these ecosystems? Well, again, this is a very big, complex issue. So there are a couple of different um, strategies. So part of the problem is the impact of the climate crisis that rising water temperatures are fundamentally affecting the ecosystems, right, and impacting them. 
Um, so that's a huge problem. There's the conservation issue. So areas of the ocean are being overfished or structurally impacted um, by short-sighted efforts to make room for commercial vessels that destroy them. So that's um, a multifaceted issue and it really needs a multifaceted response. So there are a lot of organizations working to protect oceans and we try to identify a couple of different organizations. One was looking at the big picture, Oceana, and then Rare, which was dealing with um, very local groups. And we brought them together, even though they're interested in the same issue. And now they're trying to figure out together how we can help to preserve the oceans and not overfish. So that's just one example of overfishing. Um, for oceans, we also bring together you know, lots of other nonprofits who are working independently so they could align their strategies and ambitions. And we've also shared our work with other funders because we always like others to fund the work with us and um, partnerships. I think a lot of foundations don't do that, but um, not surprisingly, we also bring the data. We made a big investment in Global Fishing Watch. And what they do, Hank, is track the world's fishing vessels so we can ensure that ships are not entering protected areas of the ocean. And this is really exciting. When you talk about data, you can go on the Bloomberg terminal and follow some of this stuff too, which is really amazing. So those are the big goals, but here are a couple of recent examples that gave me a lot of hope. Um, here's one in particular. At Glasgow, I met with a guy named Sam Teicher who co-founded Coral Vida and won the Prince William's New Urshot Prize, which we're partnering with. And he developed a new technology to actually grow coral on land at up to 50 times faster than current methods in the water. So it has huge potential and we're looking forward to following his progress. And so while the overall efforts to protect the oceans are really uphill battle, there are signs of progress and intervention like um, Sam's and his group hopefully will make a big difference. A couple of facts which should, I think, be encouraging. Last year, um, after years of work by the Wildlife Conservation Society, who I know you've worked with too, uh, Fiji passed its first national ocean policy, and they set aside 30% of the waters as marine protected areas, and that's very encouraging. So creating marine protected areas is also one of our strategies. Um, Benin became the first country in Africa to commit to sharing fishing vessel data. And two years ago in the Bahamas, they passed a new science-based national fisheries law. It's the first update to their fisheries law in 50 years and goes a long way to protect a few very important reefs. So, you know, these are little snippets. It's not enough progress, but it's promising and we're keeping fighting on. Yeah, well, I, I tell you, you're we're winning a lot of war, some of them little, some of them big. The big battle, you know, is still is still out there. You know, I look forward to the day when, you know, the international uh, governments will come together and recognize that the ocean is a global commons and every freighter that goes over it has to pay a tax, right? Which will go into, into the money that's needed to uh, pr preserve the oceans. I love the idea of tracking fishing fleets because- yeah. We can now show that the Chinese fleet, you know, is, is right there in Latin American waters. You know, the next step will be to have more money or, or more political welfare enforcement from some of those countries. You've got to start with the data. Got to start with it. So, Patty, lastly, what advice can you share to our young listeners around the process of building their careers 
Maybe some of them want to be a Patty Harris someday. But what, you know, this is a complex, you know, world they're going into and a challenging world. What, what advice do you give them? I think you'll succeed if you love what you do. You have to find a place where you believe in the people that you work with and that they believe in you. And obviously you have to, you know, care about the content. But we spend so much time working. You really want to feel inspired and respected and supported and um, have a little fun sometimes with the people that you're spending time with at work. I don't think anything's wrong with that. Um, But you can't spend all your time working. I think balance is really important. You know, I may be a leader at work, but I'm also a mom and a wife and a sister and a daughter and a friend and a board member. And those titles are important to me too. And so you can't prioritize every role every day. But when I look across like a week or a month, I try to find some kind of balance. Now, Michael Bloomberg always says, be the first one in and the last one to leave. I think that's great. But then you also have to have a little life beyond that. So um, I think that's important. And it goes back to what I said, I guess, the beginning about you can tell a lot about a leader as to how they spend their time. And the same for a person. So I would say to your listeners, spend time on the things that matter to you and really make sure that you're spending your time productively and efficiently. I would say, Patty, that's great advice. The thing you didn't mention that your life epitomizes is there aren't shortcuts, right? You start start somewhere, you got to learn. Because what stands out to me is your first jobs. You learned about New York City from the ground level up, doing things and learning and growing. You didn't start off saying, you know, I want to be the first deputy mayor of New York City. Right. And boy, the other thing, the work-life balance, I got to tell you, I've worked with so many people over the years that have been successful. And I don't know any that when they step down or when they retire, say, you know, I had all these great accomplishments. My my family doesn't love me. My kids don't like me. I don't have any friends (laughs) that are happy, right? And so it all comes down to work-life balance. Someone like you or that's that's ambitious, you're not going to have a happy family life unless you've got a good career. But you're also, you have a hard time having a good career unless you've got a balanced life. Let me tell you, Patty, this has been terrific. You've covered a lot of ground and I, I really thank you. Thank you, Hank. It was fun. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to the Paulson Institute for allowing us to repurpose this episode of Straight Talk for Follow the Data. Kindly note the views of the podcast guests are entirely their own, and Bloomberg Philanthropies hasn't independently verified any of the statements made by this week's podcast guests. You can keep up with the Paulson Institute by following at Paulson, I-N-S-T, and with Patty Harris by following at Patty Harris. This episode was adapted for Follow the Data by Amy June, Sarah Washington-Gogan, Devin Alessio, Suzanne Foote, Allison Crone, Ivy Lee, and Elliot Popko. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. 
So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Katherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.